You found us through fly fishing. You'll stay for our passion and the community. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. Yeah, but he doesn't get it. How come fly fishermen don't get it? You only haul with the short power snap. Look for where people walk and the insides of bends and hunt those. The roof blew off and the interior walls got sucked out and the trees are just coming up. And I mean, he's clearly not going to clear the trees. It is not a fly fishing story. It's a story about me trying to understand my brother through fly fishing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We've been waiting for you. Follow our guests, follow us on Instagram, and share this episode and the love if you enjoy this podcast. And we are live in three, two, one. How are you guys doing? Doing great, Dave. Doing fantastic. Awesome. Thanks for coming on here, you guys. This is, um, you know, we've been talking a little bit about this, getting this uh, ready, and I'm excited to uh, dig into uh, Togiak because you guys are in one of those places that's um, well-known around the world for fishing, for salmon, rainbows. Um, and so we're going to talk about all that today. Before we jump into the lodge, how you guys came to be there, maybe start us out with fishing. What's your first memory? Maybe talk about just kind of fishing in general and then how you kind of got into the fly fishing stuff. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll lead this one off. So my, my earliest memory was fishing with my dad on a, on a small lake just outside of Olympia, Washington. And at the time, he had a 12-foot inflatable Achilles with a, an old two-stroke 20-horse mercury on it. And he would actually wedge me in between the pontoons and my walker when I was a toddler. <laughs> and we'd go fishing. And I remember it was, it was shortly after that. I was up and moving around. And I remember looking over the edge of that inflatable boat, um, obviously with a, a life vest on. I remember him saying, now, Zach, don't get too close to the edge because you're going to fall over, right? And you, you know what's coming next. So naturally, he turns around to make a cast or do something. And I'm leaning as far over the edge as I can. And into the drink I go. Oh, wow. I remember him reaching in and, and grabbing my life vest and pulling me back on board. And naturally, I was freaked out. And I think he thought the whole thing was pretty amusing. But suffice it to say that I, I've been on the boat literally since I can remember. Wow. So and how, now, how old were you there again? What, what age? I mean, probably three and a half. That's it. So I'm, I'm assuming, yeah, your dad, I'm assuming is a pretty uh, extreme angler. If he's doing that, that's pretty, that's pretty awesome. Uh, to say that he is obsessed might be an understatement. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. That's very cool. All right. And so, uh, so Jordan, no, so that was Zach. So get us clear. Zach, well, that was you? Correct. Okay. And Jordan, uh, what is your memory, first memory similar? Well, not necessarily. Now there's a bit of a contrast between Zach and I, and for those who are curious, we are brothers. I, I tend to assume that most people know that, but a lot of people don't know that. So him and my dad definitely have more of a passion for fishing than I do. I love to fish, but just not quite as deeply as them. So I have lots of memories, you know, with my dad on the boat. Uh, the ones that come to my mind are fishing here on the Nisqually or going over to Banks Lake, which we always used to do as a, as a family. But the ones that stick out to me the most are with my brother and it's kind of when we were you know cutting our teeth so to speak on on really learning how to salmon fish and at our disposal was not just one but two achilles inflatables um so we had our dad's old like 85 or 86 12 foot achilles inflatable like zach was saying with the two-stroke 25 horse start. we'd run that on the nisqually prop and that's a small river and uh, we really, we never really got ourselves into too much trouble, but there were a couple 
times where we just did really well on Kings. And, you know, at the time I was probably maybe nine or 10 years old. And I remember thinking like, this is pretty cool. I feel very independent right now. You know what I mean? We ran, we got a smaller one. We have a 10 footer as well. And we ran that with a six horse, two stroke Merc prop all the way out into Puget Sound, which is probably six miles from where we launch and, uh, you know, some super shallow stuff. And in hindsight, we had no business doing that. So I think I tend to latch on more to like the total experience, especially with the boats. The fishing is great, but I tend to focus more on the experience as a whole than specifically the fish. Do, um, do you remember how old you were? Oh, for that, yeah, for, for probably, the, for that adventure out into the sound, probably, probably 10, yeah, yeah probably that, 10 or so that, uh, that sounds about right. 10 yeah. to 12. I was a teenager. Yeah. I bought that six, two stroke Merc off of Craigslist and it was terrible and beat up and oh, we did all awful. sorts of, we had all sorts of adventures in that little boat. Yeah. That <laughs> yeah. Great. Regarding fly fishing though. I, I mean, I, I had zero interest in fly fishing until my first year in Alaska, which was 2016. And, you know, one of my buddies up there, uh, who I'd become acquainted with, uh, was from Idaho and he offered for me to cast his eight weight off the dock. And to be honest, I had kind of always kind of like put my nose up to it and like, ah, I'm not going to do that. And I cast, I tried to cast a few times and then it was like immediately a, a challenge and like, okay, I, I might need to learn how to do this. And so there was a, a vet guiding on the Togiak for like 25 years and he's the one who ended up teaching me how to cast and there's so many silvers in the river in august and september that you don't have to you don't have to be able to cast well to catch fish and so that's also the benefit of learning in a place like that is it's a target rich environment and you learn so much quicker when you're actually like around fish like it's it's a drive like when you can see them or you're trying to uh fish uh you know surface flies and and get those explosions like it gives you incentive to learn quicker if that makes sense and so that first year I caught a couple silvers on lodge eight weights. And then at that point I was like, okay, I'm going to have to get my own setups. And then from there, like I would much rather go and target like large mouth or small mouth in the springtime on my fly rods or kind of cherry pick my free time during the summer and go target rainbows on my fly rod in, instead of seeing on like the bread and butter that our guests are there for. Like the silvers are fun and stuff, but like I'm to the point now where like I want to go throw streamers for giant rainbows. Like that's, that's my jam now. So I'm a little bit more maybe eccentric or more niche. <laughs> than you were. Correct. Yes. Yeah, than you were. And you guys have some giant rainbows. That's one of the things you have up there and the, you're at your lodge is some really big rainbows. We do. Yeah, we definitely do. The, the Togiak isn't nearly as known for large rainbows as a lot of the other Bristol Bay drainages. And I don't know that we have the numbers that some of those other rivers do, but we have some especially large uh, specimens in there. Um, and it's, I think the rainbow fishery, it's safe to say, is largely untapped. Oh, super untapped. Um, the upper reaches of the drainage, we'll say from like River Mile 20 to 25 or so upstream to the lake, which is at River Mile, it's probably at River Mile 80 or 85. Um, all of that is wilderness area. And it's it's National Wildlife Refuge. And to, so it just doesn't get pressured at all. It's just, it's, you know, it's not like the knack or the Quijack that have, you know, lots of different um, operations and they're targeting those rainbows where our lodge is at down in the lower reaches of it. We're on the upper edge of tidewater. Um, those fish are highly migratory. They're following smolts around and you know, they're going to be where food source is at. But when you figure out where the food source is at, there are some monsters in there and it's, 
in previous years, it's only been really an afterthought for us. Most of the people are there to target salmon. Um, you know, they'll catch a bit of salmon or, or catch and release salmon until they're worn out. And then they go, hey, could we go maybe look for some rainbows? You know, and it's it's oftentimes been guys who aren't especially driven to catch rainbows, but it's they're there. And, you know, when in Rome, do as the Romans do sort of thing. Um, so we're excited to really dig into that and see just what the potential is, because even without trying, we're we're running into these big fish fairly, fairly. So, yeah, because they're hanging out, right? The rainbows during the certain time they're hanging be- with the salmon, right? Eating eggs and things like that. Exactly. Exactly. And it's, you know, it's cool where we're at because we've got all five species, you know, the, the chums will come in and they'll start spawning. And so the rainbows will be in behind them eating eggs. And then the Kings are spawning a little bit later and a little more spread out. So if you can find spawning Kings, there's rainbows in behind them and then the pinks start spawning. And so you kind of go through this cycle of, you know, eggs and flesh, eggs and flesh, eggs and flesh, and you get multiple different opportunities throughout the year to target them in different ways. And yeah. it just kind of, it just kind of repeats itself three or four times a summer. It's pretty cool. Yeah, this is great. No, I, I'm excited. I think that, uh, I want to hear today, you know, about the operation and, and the fishing and everything. And maybe, maybe we could just start there on that. Like if for somebody that doesn't know it, I mean, I might be able to get up there, I think this next summer and, uh, and maybe experience it, you know, and share more of it as we go here. But for somebody who hasn't been up there, hasn't seen it, maybe hasn't even been to Alaska, you know, how do you describe, you know, they, they're coming up to that experience. How, how do you, you know, describe that to somebody? Our words will not even come close to touching what it is actually like to be there in person. It's like, it's hard to explain what it is like there, especially in, in Togiak. And I can't tell you how many times we've had guests that have, you know, traveled Alaska a lot. And maybe they bring a, a grandchild or a, a son, niece, nephew, whatever it is who have never salmon fished and it's like, dude, you're in like the Mecca right now. And it's Togiak specifically. It, it's as remote as you can get and it's pristine. It's pure. Like it's untapped and it's not, it hasn't been altered by man. Like it's just, it's as wild as you could imagine anything being, you know what I mean? And it's for, for some people, it's hard to like wrap their minds around that because we don't really have that here. Like sure. There's areas on the peninsula or wherever that you can take float trips and it's, and it's beautiful and, and it is largely natural, but there's still a lot of people around. Right. And that's the difference here is like, you are, you are completely in the middle of nowhere. You know? Yeah. I think I, I'll, I'll chime in on that and add to what Jordan was saying. Like the, the wild factor I think is what is most, like that's what most affects the person when they get up there. It, the, the scenery is beautiful. Don't get me wrong. I, I wouldn't say that in Southwest Alaska that we have, you know, you're not looking at timbered forests no, and, no. you know, stunningly big trees or anything like that. In, in fact, it's a little bit more barren than I initially expected when I went up there. Yeah. Um, I picture more New Zealand. Yes, absolutely. But it is everything that a teenage boy who grew up, let's say, in the Midwest or on a farm in eastern Washington who's been reading Field and Stream and Gary Paulson novels growing up. Absolutely. Like, it's everything <laughs> they imagined Alaska and the wild would be when you show up in, in a way that, like, is kind of overwhelming. And it's, it's an emotional, for me at least, because that was me, like, as a teenager, I dreamed about Alaska. I don't even really know that I had any idea what Alaska was actually going to be like, but I wanted to go somewhere wild. And when I got to the lodge, like it was that in an overwhelming, very emotional sort of way. So 
we like to say that we we cater to the to the to the teenage boy who's grown up into an adult or the teenage gal for that matter has dreamed of seeing something truly wild truly untouched by man and that's i think that's what we have yeah at togiak wow it's pristine yeah, yeah. it is it is for sure yeah that is amazing yeah no i and as you look at it on a map you see really where it's at i mean it is it's not anywhere close to Anchorage, you know, it's, it's in the middle, it's probably closer to Bethel, which is way out there too. So you're, you're there. I want to talk about a little bit how you get there, but talk about the, you just described it, you know, this is like a dream come true. I mean, how do you guys find yourself uh, where you are now running this lodge? Tell us how that happened. Yeah, that is a very long story. So I will do my (laughs) best to make it succinct. (laughs) We, our first Exposure to the Lodge was on an episode of Larry Zonka's North to Alaska, and that probably would have been in 2000, probably 2006 to 2008. Oh, okay. Is this like a, is this a a YouTube uh, show or a TV or what is it? You know, it was a, it was a show that was on Fox Sports Northwest every Saturday when we were growing up. Oh, okay. I remember Larry Zonka. He was a football player, right? Correct. And he was the host. And so they'd go fishing or hunting somewhere different for every episode. Um, And it was always in Alaska, right? And uh, so around my sophomore year in high school, uh, sitting down on a Saturday morning with my dad watching the show and you know, we'd salmon fished a lot here. That was kind of, you know, our, our driving action and they're on the Togiak and they're fishing for kings and they were chrome bright, beautiful kings in tidewater, you know, in this wild place that you know, nobody else could get to. And that, that was our first exposure to Togiak River Lodge. And I remember my dad and I looking at each other and just going, man, someday we want to go there. And, you know, we, we grew up um, pretty humbly. Um, my dad was a you know, machinist in the shipyards. Uh, he made decent money, but he worked really hard to support us. Um, my mom worked really hard as well, but there wasn't lots of extra money. And that was fine. We, we, we lacked for nothing. We, we did a lot of fun things here, but it was always a dream that was probably going to be unfulfilled, right? It was just this thing that we would talk about and dream about. And uh, that's, it didn't go any farther than that. But I remember we talked about that for years after that. Man, remember that episode up there? Well, flash forward, I'm 21. I started guiding uh, here in Washington um, for salmon and steelhead on on a number of uh, western Washington rivers, the the primary one being the Nisqually, the the smaller river that Jordan and I both grew up on. And uh, I just by chance ran into another guide. One day, it was in December, we were fishing for for chum salmon of all things and uh, had a it was a, a large group of military guys um, out on a big joint trip. I think there were three guides involved. And anyway, we're, we're at shore lunch and uh, everybody's chatting and getting to know each other. And, and this other guide, I knew who he was, but didn't know him and started talking about, you know, fishing in Alaska and all sorts of different things. And he, he had guided at Togiak River Lodge. And he goes, well, would you ever, you know, would you ever want to guide in Alaska? And at this point, I'm a 21-year-old punk fishing guide who really has no idea what he's doing. I mean, for being honest about what's going on, right? But I'm loving it. And uh, so he goes, is this something you want to continue to do? I said, man, I, I love this. So yeah, I want, I want to keep doing this. And he goes, well, would you ever want to go to Alaska? I said, man, what young startup fishing guy doesn't want to go to Alaska? I said, I've never been. And I really don't know anybody who's up there, you know, with any sort of operation. I don't have the means of the ways to get myself there to do any sort of business. And uh, he just kind of chuckled and he goes, well, what would you think about working for a place called Togiak River Lodge? And I immediately, I mean, I knew exactly where he was talking about. It's the only lodge in the river. I dreamed about going to this very place. Um, of all the places in Alaska, this was the one place that I had kind of fixated on. And uh, 
So I was like, well, I mean, I, I, I know exactly which lodge you're talking about, but you know, what, what do you mean? Like, what, what are you talking about? And he goes, well, I worked up there for a number of years and, and uh, I know the owners pretty well and I can get you a job if you want one. And, uh, so I was just like, well, yeah, this sounds great. Well, I didn't have my Coast Guard certification. I didn't have my, my uh, OUPV um, license at that point. Um, hadn't started the process to get it. And uh, really, like I said, I was just a young punk fishing guide who really didn't have his stuff in order. And this guy stayed after me for like a year and a half. Like he'd call me every month. Hey, you got your license yet? Hey, you're ready to go. And finally, I got my slow moving button gear and I got my certifications and, and uh, called him up and said, hey, Nick, you know, if you could still pull that string, I'd love to go up to the lodge and work. And he goes, yeah, I'll call the, I'll call Larry, the previous owner. And uh, so he gets on the phone with Larry. I think Larry called me, what, 45 minutes later, an hour later. He goes, when can you come up? And I said, do you, you want to have like an interview? Like, do you want to meet me or go fishing or know anything about me? He goes, no, I trust Nick. Come on up. And <laughs> 2015, that would have been spring of 2015. I'm getting ready to go up there. And, uh, that's, I mean, that's how we started. That's, that's how we got up there. Jordan and my dad, you know, obviously they're, you know, living vicariously through me at this point, wanting to know updates and how it is and that we got in to probably early July. And, uh, Larry, the previous owner myself had a conversation one night and he goes, well, who are you bringing up to visit you? And I said, well, shoot, Larry, I can't pay for somebody to come up here and go on a trip. I'm just a, a young fishing guide. He goes, no, no, no. He goes, who are you going to bring up in between seasons to visit you? Well, evidently I had missed a memo or an email or something along the way because he would allow staff members who were staying the whole summer to bring up, you know, a limited number of friends or in between our two defined seasons to hang out and fish. And well, they're not getting the full client experience for sure, but just come enjoy it. Sure. So, I mean, I, we no sooner had that conversation. I got on the phone with my dad. I said, what are you doing the end of July, mid to end of July? And it was just silence, you know, stunned. <laughs> silence. Well, why? I said, because you and Jordan can come up and we can have our, you know, week-long guys trip in Alaska that we've always dreamed about, and it's not going to cost us. Wow. And uh, so we did. They came up, and it was it was that magical year-in-the-wild experience that we had all dreamed about and talked about and fantasized about for so long. And the rest, I think, is kind of history. Um, I'll let Jordan weigh in on his role wow. thereafter and how we got That's amazing. That, by the way, Zach, that is an amazing story, the fact that you were able to uh... – just by, you know, it always seems like it's luck, but I know it never is. You, you know, you put so much time, everybody does to get in the position to be lucky. So I'm sure that's what it was for you, but that is really a cool story. Yeah. It, it would make a great film one day, maybe, <laughs> uh, at least in my mind it does. But anyway, <laughs> I was, uh, 17 when I went up there the first time in 2015, I was coming into my senior year of high school and, um, I brought a GoPro. I mean, who wouldn't, right. And, so I filmed everything while I was up there and I was, you know, I, when you're 17, like I was having a really hard time with figuring out what the heck I wanted to do after I graduated. And I was running a, a landscaping business while I was in high school. And I knew for a fact that I didn't want to do that. Right. But, um, anyway, I'm filming up there and on the, the last day of, um, Larry, the previous owner asked if he could fish with us our, our last which of course we said yes it was awesome i, I kind of like i very much looked up to him and i had never really been around people with like 
that much like authority or success or whatever. And so very impressionable on me. Anyways, I'm filming and maybe like halfway through our morning, he looks at me and uh, he says, or he asked me, you know, would you have any interest in working up here next summer? I said, well, you know, of course. And uh, he said, I can tell that you really, you know, have a passion for filming. I'll hire you as a videographer and you can film guests each day, you know, for a half morning or a day or whatever. And then we can turn their trip into a DVD and then they can take it home with us. And it's really a, it's cheap marketing. Like we'll make it complimentary. They're already paying a lot of money to be here. So the marketing expense will more or less be your wages. And um, he said, get some, you know, go back, see what kind of uh, classes you can get under your belt and experience, et cetera. And I just kind of like light bulb went off in my head. I was like, I had never thought about this, but I think that maybe I want to go into like video production for outdoor related companies. It just like instant light, bulb, super cool. So I got back enrolled in a couple different classes. I got a camera and uh, pretty quickly I was like, yeah, this is cool, man. Like this is really cool. And so incredibly blessed my parents for my graduation gift they found this company in ohio that specializes in uh, production and editing classes for people who want to get into outdoor film for hunting and fishing shows like on sportsman outdoor channel that kind of thing and so they they bought me a four-day editing class um, so that i would kind of have the foundational skills before the next summer and i'll tell you that class was overkill but it was awesome like it just like lit a fire for me for production that like to this day I still have that passion anyways so the next summer I get up there and I you know after our startup and and uh getting the lodge process was over I filmed almost every single day you know for the whole season and so I would spend three to four days out of a five-day rotation filming and then I'd spend one full day editing and give or take a day or so you know, but I was, I, I tried to be as thorough as I could with the time and the content that I had. Like I, I really wanted it to be as, as good as possible. And so I, with doing that, right, like I got to meet a very large portion of our guests because I'm hopping around boat to boat. Like, so I'm, I'm getting this interaction with guests way more than even the guides do. Like sure the guides have the regulars that they fish each year, but I'm getting to meet a lot of people. And so I did that the first summer. Larry decided to have me do it again a second season. So now I'm very acquainted with most everybody who's repeat customers. And I come into my third season and I get up there. I have a bunch of uh, new lenses. I have a new uh, Sony mirrorless camera. Like I've spent a lot of money on stuff for the season, anticipating that that is what I would be doing again. And I get there and Larry tells me, well, we're going to do something a little different this year and you're not going to film, uh, but you're, you're going to help me do my job. And I was just like appalled. <laughs> I was like, dude, you waited until I got here. Right. Right. You're pissed. <laughs> yeah. I'm like 19, 20 years old. I'm like, I don't have any managing experience. Like what, why, you know? And it just, the whole thing was just like bizarre to me. Well, and I, I just a brief little bit of backstory to make this sense it's a it was a, a family run operation um larry and his wife patty what was larry's last name uh, larry lund larry lund okay larry, larry lund and his wife patty and then his son kevin um would would run this operation and patty would come in for you know short amounts of time it really wasn't her jam 
Larry was at retirement age and he is a fishing nut, a king salmon junkie. Like this was his dream as well in, in a lot of ways. But he's re at retirement age. He's ready to just be done. You know, it's been successful. It's been fun, but he's tired. And there were some, you know, there were some family dynamics there, as there always are, small family-ran operations that made things difficult at times. And so for Jordan, that was a, it, there was a little bit of shell shock, like, yeah, you, you say what? Yeah. <laughs> right. He was grooming you guys. Yeah. Correct. Well, Correct. And, and for me, we didn't, on the guide end of things, we never had a, a lead guide. We never had a head guide. Uh, there, was a, there was a leadership void there, at least in that part of the operation and, and nothing against Larry and saying that it's just, that's what it was. And for me, like I, I liked the needed to be done. And so I just got them done because, you know, it was a lot easier to have them done and it was better for all the rest of the guides. And so real quickly, I was, I was in charge of ordering and inventorying all of our, you know, all of our consumables that the guides were going to go through at the lodge. And that turned into, then we were involved with trade shows and we just, I think we kind of assumed assisting in management just because we were passionate well, about the place. We, yeah. I mean, super passionate and just taking initiative because we wanted the guests to have the ultimate experience even before we owned it. Right. Yeah. So I get through that summer 2018. It was tough. Like it was I, a rough summer. For I you. didn't really enjoy it. It was my first, if for anybody here who's listening, who has experience managing other people, it's tough, man. Like, yeah, it's not an easy job. Employees can be really difficult. God bless, you know. Especially Yeah. And so anyway, we get done with that season. And so we're, you know, we're doing trade shows that that winter. And um, Larry more or less asks if I would come back in the same capacity. And I said, I will. But here's the thing. Like, I want to continue filming. Like, I want to run a production company. I'm trying to grow a production company. So here's what we'll do. I'm going to write my job description. And Larry was just a great guy. And we had an awesome level of trust between each other. And I told him, I said, I'll help you with your stuff, but I'm going to shoot content each day because like, I need to do that for my own skills. It'll be lodge content. It's a win-win for everybody. And so again, I know all the customers from filming. And so it was just like old hat, take phone calls for them, emails, like I'm ordering food and doing all the charter logistics, like helping with payroll and tips. Like I'm, I'm doing all of it. And so he's like stepped aside the first, most of the King season 2019, he had a buddy up there and they would just go fish. Uh, he'd check in with me every once in a while at the end of the King season, he left early. He left a week early. Um, cause he had a, uh, medical procedure that he had to deal with and which he had never done before. He, he, had, he had never stepped away, never stepped away. And he left, and he's like, okay, you guys, like, you know the drill, like, just do the thing. And we had reduced capacity, but even so, the la that last five day rotation, like, we had guests there, we were calling the shots. Like, man, this is this is cool. It, yeah, this is really neat. It was, and it wasn't how you would generally set somebody up for success. Like, it was pretty off the cuff and unexpected for us. Yes, there were, you know, the, the family dynamics, uh, his son that I had mentioned before that, and there were some tensions there. Um, and so we're just flying by the pants yeah now at right about the same time um, there were some longtime guests that had come up um, and usually they would come up every year for silvers uh, it's a, a dad daughter duo um, their first year uh, fishing at the lodge was my first year guiding at the lodge and we had been paired up and we hit it off right off the bat just super sweet people and over the years we had come to to become very good friends with them and uh, Larry had he'd been trying to sell the lodge for a long time it had been post sale um, because he, you know, he wanted to retire, you know, and 
just figured he'd run it until it sold and it wasn't that big of a deal. And uh, so a frequent topic of conversation when they were up there was, you know, hey, has Larry found somebody to buy the lodge yet? And usually it was, no, you know, nobody's really been interested or, you know, I don't know if he's really ready to let go yet or whatever. And uh, so 2019, this time period where he's getting ready to leave, they're up there for Kings. First time they've been there for Kings. And same conversations come up on the boat. You know, how's the, how's the sale process going? Has he found anybody? Well, he had actually had a very serious contender that he'd, he'd been speaking to for months and who he'd included Jordan and I in on these communications and how we would make this process smooth in the event that this deal went through. And for whatever reason, at the last minute, it didn't work out. And, uh, so I kind of filled him in on all this and, uh, Ben, the, the dad, he's in his 80s. We're, we're fishing for Kings. We're, we're, we're back trolling some big plugs down through this run and we're kind of going back and forth. And he and I, we enjoy giving each other a lot of crap, right? The jokes are flying all day. We're, we're ribbing each other constantly. And uh, which is pretty normal for us. Yeah. We're having this conversation about the sale of the lodge and he comes off the cuff with, well, shoot, why don't you and Jordan just buy it? And I kind of, I said, well, shoot, Ben, you're a rich old guy. If you got a couple million bucks laying around, why don't you toss it our way and we'll buy it. And uh, he just got real quiet and he goes, well, I just sold this commercial property and I'm looking to reinvest. So would you and your brother want to do something like that? And I could tell that this conversation was different, right? Yeah. But I didn't know. I didn't know for sure. Like, are we still jesting each other? You know, are we yanking each other's chains? And uh, I just kind of looked at him and said, well, Ben, if this is a serious conversation, let's reel these rods in and pull over and have a chat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and right. so we did. We sat there in the river and more or less he goes, you know, we've seen how involved you guys are already. You know, you have a good understanding of the behind the scenes. You know, what's there. You know, what's not. You know, what's good. You know, what's bad. Um, it wouldn't be a surprise for you to step into this operation. There's nothing that's really hidden from you at this point. And you're passionate about it. So if you had the opportunity to do that, would you do it? Talk about a loaded question, right? Right. And I'm just like, whoa, well, um, yes, I think so. <laughs> like, you know, th this had been an ongoing joke between Larry and Jordan and I as well, where he'd say, ah, oh, well, maybe you Larson brothers will buy it. So oh, right. You know, yeah. and so this was not a surprise to Jordan when you came back to him and said, Hey, well, here's an idea. Yeah. And so, so yeah, we, that, that started that conversation process and that, that summer overall was tough. Uh, we, you know, obviously we went back, they, they communicated with Larry that, Hey, maybe we'd like to take a look at the financials. We might consider the purchase of this, you know, and, and he knew what that meant. He knew our relationship with them. Um, and I think all parties thought that, you know, this could, this could work out favorably, but that, that summer was, was tough. Larry was gone for the last part of King season, um, over our break period between the two seasons, Jordan and I came home to catch a breather for, you know, seven to 10 days. Yeah. Between. Was this 2019 or 2018? 2019. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, we get a phone call from Larry, um, during that break period. And he more or less says, Oh, by the way, I'm not actually going to be there for the last half of the season. You Zach and Jordan are in charge along with my, my son. And we're like, okay, uh, weird. This Larry, you, there had been enough tensions in the past and we don't want to get into those. Sure, but I said, sure. I understand that this could, you know, this could work out well, but it probably won't. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, well, I know, but, uh, we've got to do this. And, you know, basically I trust you guys and I think it'll be just fine. It was a test is what it was. It, sure. Yeah, terrible test. Yeah. yeah. 
And so we get through the end of the season and Jordan and I have both packed up everything we own that's at the lodge and we're, we're in the process of sending it home because we're, we're not really intending on coming back if, if things don't change. You know, in this conversation about possibly buying lodges going on in the background, but people say a lot of things when they're up there. They're excited. They're in the moment, you know, and we've heard stuff kind of like this before. And so I don't know how, I don't know how seriously we took it. Yeah. Kind of just, well, wait and see if something comes of it. Great. If, if not, then, you know, we'll, we'll make other plans sort of deal. Um, you want to yeah. lead into the last part of the story so that we yeah. can wrap it up. Yeah. And just to speed things up. Um, I had left that season early. I was filming in Montana for a, a production company that does several different shows on the sportsman channel. And so we got back and I got home in October. Finally, I'd been gone since May and we kind of reconvened, um, you know, with our prospect to investors and they had gotten all the financials, et cetera. They liked what they saw. And, uh, so we had, they made a meeting, uh, or a meeting date in November to meet with Larry and make a formal offer. Uh, he rejected that offer, uh, in December. And we, at that point we kind of thought, okay, this, it's not going to go anywhere. I'm busy with production stuff. Zach's guiding full-time here. And like, that's what we need to focus on. Right. It's like two weeks later, they make another offer, Larry tentatively accepts in early January, and you can see where this is going. This is January 2020. Um, yeah, the start of COVID. Right. So then uh, we have a tentative agreement, and COVID just stretched this thing out and made it just – it was really an awful time, to be honest with you. So we finally signed papers May 7th of 2020, and it was like, dude, I don't <laughs> – I don't know how we're going to make this work. Like everything right, and the season starts right now. Yes. Yeah, so the season starts in uh, a month. We have to leave in like two or three weeks. Like state of Alaska isn't letting anybody in without quarantine. Like it just was right. And so we like, we just took a risk. We bought all of our airfare for our staff. There were a very large amount of deposits, not actually taken for guests. We didn't actually know who was going to come. Like, dude, it was a disaster. Right. Like for wow. us to, come in as new owners it was it was not so but we made it we made it work and and because we ran those trips in 2020 because most of you got to remember most of the lodges canceled their season and rolled everything forward to the next year so now you have all these people who want to go especially because like everybody's got a lot of money in this time frame right and everyone wants to go to alaska nobody has spots so because we ran our our trips in 2020 we were able to book completely full in 21 which was exactly what we needed obviously is like brand new owners and and everything and, and it had never been ran completely full it had never been like full full the whole season and so 21 22 and then this last this last summer 23 we have been like plum full i mean oh, obviously amazing. a couple holes here and there but sure yeah it's been it's uh covid was tough for us in 2020 but it made us very prosperous prosperous in 21 right led to more new repeat customers, et cetera, you know? Well, and it was such a blessing in hindsight because it gave us a chance to do a trial run at reduced capacity and, you know, kind of come into our own, what was torturous in, you know, in the midst of it, really in hindsight, I'm so glad that it happened that way because yeah. having been tossed into a completely full season or even a two thirds full season as brand new owners, that would have been rough. Yeah, so that, that's, <laughs> it been rough. that's the long and the short of it. Um, you know, our two investors, short, they, they made it happen. Um, and, uh, so yeah, we're, this is, uh, we just got done with our fourth 
fourth season managing. Uh, we've we've owned it for a little over three three and a half years, and yeah, it's it's a dream come true. It's a wild story. Wow, and the story continues. That's the cool thing about this. this is definitely the start of a movie. We're, we're somewhere in the middle. Maybe we'll, yes. we'll follow up. But uh, so let, let's let's hear about so a little more on the lodge itself. So talk about that. If um, let's just say somebody was coming up there in, I mean, I know you know you got July, August. There's lots of different times. What is you know say they're coming up in July? Walk us through what that looks like. I guess they fly into Anchorage and then take a plane over, drop in. Uh, how does that look? Give us that whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, all of our trips include airfare uh, on private charters directly from Anchorage to Togiak. So uh, otherwise you would have to fly back and it's a mess, man. It's just, it's, it can be very frustrating. Yeah. So you fly directly and where is the, so the plane that flies from Anchorage into Togiak, it lands right there and there must be a strip in. Is it, is Togiak, is that an actual town there? Yeah, it's an it's an actual establishment. It has about eight hundred full time residents, um, and there is a gravel runway in town that the planes land on, and uh, they pull over next to a hangar, and we greet them with the uh, the boats and the trucks, offload everything, get all of our cargo and our groceries, and then it's about a five minute drive through the village down to the beach. We launch the boats, load everyone up, and then we run up to the lodge. It's another fifteen minutes from the village so we're six miles from the mouth of the river so more or less that that's the logistics uh it's it's pretty involved to get there but we try to make it as as easy and and seamless as possible yeah no it's great i see it right now yeah you roll up and then and then what does it look like are people typically coming in there for say a a week-long trip or is there a mix of types of trips they're doing we're a little different than most of the lodges in bristol bay most of the lodges do a seven-day rotation uh, we do not do any seven-day trips. We do three, four, and five-day trips. Five days is is kind of the bread and butter. Uh, it's a happy medium in between, you know, a three and a seven-day uh, for those who want to be there a little bit longer and kind of get a taste of everything but not also have the expense of a seven-day trip as well, which is a big thing. And so – um, yeah, the five day trips are, are definitely the most popular. Um, and, and here's how the rotations work because of how logistical it is to get people in. We have a set schedule. So if it's someone doesn't call and say, Hey, I want to be there July 23rd through the 30th. Like we have set days. Like these are the dates. These are the time frames where we have our rotations and then they'll have to make their schedule work around that. If that makes sense. Gotcha. So, so typically if you had a five day rotation or somebody coming in for five days, they would come in on say like a Sunday sort of thing. Is that kind of how it works? Yeah. So, well, it's, it's not day dependent. It's, it's date dependent. So we've had the same, we've had the same dates, uh, the last like probably six years at this point. So if you're coming, you're going to fish the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, leave on the sixth. And then the next five day rotation begins on the sixth though, so as, as, when the plane comes in, it's bringing in new customers, and then the old customers get on that same plane and then dip out. So it's it's a it's a it's a very big turnover of people, and that's to minimize how many planes are coming in. If that makes sense. Yeah. So for instance, in July this year, we've done this the last couple of years. We've tossed in um, we've tossed in a three day rotation into the mix. So if yes. somebody calls and says, "Hey, you know, I wanna I wanna come up, you know, for a little bit of multi species action in July. Like I want to catch some kings, but I really want to catch some chums and some sockeyes too, but a five-day trip is too much for me, then our response is, well, hey, the 16th to the 19th of July is our designated three-day rotation. Um, you know, that would be the best spot to get you in. If you don't want to do a five-day, the next option after that, 
you know, this last year we had a, a four day uh, rotation, July 24th through the 28th. That and, and that was something that we set in advance. And then when people inquire, we go, here are your possible date ranges that would work for what you want to accomplish. Correct. And then it's the same for silvers. Like we have a uh, we have a peak uh, three-day trip, August 20th through the 23rd. So for those who don't want to go for five days. And a lot of it too is like, you know, a lot of our guests are business owners or they're running like really big companies and they just can't simply be away from work that long. And so that's why the three days are also popular as well, just because people don't have the time. Um, but yeah, we try to, we have, we have uh, outside of the five day trips, which are the most popular, we do have three and four day trips that we kind of throw in uh, to the different, the two different seasons uh, just to give people options yeah. if they don't want to come. So makes sense. Makes sense. Okay. So you roll up there in the sled and then you hop in. What is that first you get to the lodge is the first day kind of get settled in and then uh, get dinner and then get ready for the next day. Is that how it looks? No, no. So our, uh, our charter flights um, are scheduled to leave Anchorage right about seven o'clock in the morning. Um, it's only about an hour and a half flight to Togiak. So assuming that weather and everything else is, uh, is acceptable. You know, a lot of times those clients are landing, you know, by nine 30 or so or earlier, or, or I'm sorry, eight 30 to nine o'clock in Togiak. Um, we, a lot of times have everybody back to the lodge, uh, by 10 o'clock or so, so out onto the water, assuming that they want to do so. And most of them are, they're chomping at the bit to get on the boat. Um, and so that first day, you know, as opposed to the normal eight hours on the water, a lot of times they're getting five to six hours on the water that first day, you know, for the, for the guests that are really like, they want to get everything that they can on that first day. Sometimes we'll run dinner a little bit later. Um, usually everybody's so pooped after that first day from traveling the day prior, um, that they're ready to come in and, you know, have dinner at the normal time. But you know, we, they, they get to the lodge we try and have all of our staff lined up um, along our boardwalk that connects to the dock um, as the boats are rolling up. So everybody's greeted as they get off the boats. We direct them into our main lodge where we've got, you know, um, hot chocolate and coffee and tea and stuff ready to go for them. Um, we bring them in. We do a, a brief orientation speech slash rundown, a little presentation just to go over the do's and the don'ts of the lodge. And uh, they eat and then they're immediately on the water from there. That's it. They're on the water. And then and are there, uh, talk about that. What do the boats look like? Where are they heading? Let's just take, let's take that August uh, 20th sort of thing, the coho, where would they be hopping in and just heading up river? Uh, sure. Yeah. So um, if we're, we're talking about those August dates, a lot of times the silvers are pretty spread out um, from the mouth on up to, you know, river mile 20 or so where, where our, our boundaries at for the wilderness area. Most of our boats are Northwest style, we'll call them jet sleds, uh, 18 to 20 foot long open aluminum boats uh, with outboard jet drives on them. Um, I think we've currently got, uh, what do we have up there? We've got five um, 20 foot Wilder XLs, Alaskan XLs with 150 horse, four stroke jets on them. Um, and then kickers and you know all the other bells and whistles. Um, and then we've got three 16 foot um, Wooldridge sleds as well with 60, 40 pumps for running some of the real small tributaries. Um, and then we've got kind of an assorted collection of other, um, river boats along the same lines. Um, uh, we've got two 19 foot North rivers in the mix again with 150 horse jets. We've got an 18 foot, uh, Willie classic, which is similar in design to the, to the North rivers. Um, it's, it's got 150 horse jet on it as well. Uh, we've got a 20 foot aluminum weld up there. We've got two 18 foot jet crafts. Um, and then we've got a large um, offshore style jet boat uh, for chasing halibut and other things around out in the bay and then getting to other tributaries out there as well. And that's a 24 foot 
uh, design concepts cabin boat um, built in Northern California as a originally as a patrol boat on Eagle Lakes in uh, Northern California. Um, but it's a, it's kind of a mix of two worlds. It's got a, a big block Chevy V8 uh, inboard jet drive in it. So we can get that across the flats and get out to that big water safely and then bring it back to the lodge at night so that we're not stuck in town. Um, but as far as the, the clients getting done with their meal, yeah, they, uh, we, we introduce them to their guide. Um, they head down the dock and toss their stuff in the boat. And then, you know, it's really at the guide's discretion um, as to where they're going to go. Uh, for the long-time returning guests, sometimes it's at their discretion where they want to sure. go. <laughs> um, but it really, it's just, you know, it's water dependent. Uh, they head off to where the fish are at. And that could be anywhere from six miles downstream to, you know, close to 15 miles upstream from the lodge. Yeah, tr- traditionally by August 20th, if we're using that as our, our example date, the water is low enough where, I mean, you could go half a mile from the lodge and find a pile of silvers like mm-hmm. it's typically during silver season like it, the only reason to go way up river is just because you want a little different scenery i mean there's there's fish everywhere you can catch pretty much wherever you want mm-hmm. to go it's just like hey let's go see something new because the, the the upper part of you know the range that we can take customers it that part of the river is very different than the lower part like it just it smells different it looks different like it just it's cool yeah. you know and so we always encourage our, our guides to take the guests up to the boundary at least once while they're there, just because it is just breathtakingly beautiful. And is the boundary when you go up there, is that like an area where you can't go for, you can't fish above the boundary? Correct. Yeah. Uh, anybody can fish above the boundary. We can't run guests for hire above for the hire. boundary Yeah. Uh, without, without a wilderness permit. Yeah. 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 I see. Yeah. So, so you guys stay, stay for the most part below the boundary for fishing. Yeah. Yeah. So we've got 20 miles, at least 20 miles, the main stem of the Togiak. And then there's another smaller tributary called the Gishik that dumps in. I would say that's probably river mile 12 or so. And we, it's, it's small. It's, it's definitely water dependent as far as how far you're going to get up it. But that's, uh, that is another just extremely remote and unique fishery unto itself. That's, uh, that's one of those adventure days. You know, uh, every group is encouraged to, go up at least towards the boundary, if not to the boundary and enjoy that up there and then take a day to go up the Gishik as well. Cause it's, it's just a completely different experience. Gotcha. Wow. And then, uh, so as far as the fishing people are coming, I think you guys have a mix, right? You have some people coming there, uh, like gear fishing, fly fishing. Talk about that. Like if somebody's coming in thinking about fly, is that, you know, paint that picture a little bit. Do they have all their options open for species and all that? Yeah, a- absolutely. So I'll just, I'll do kind of a, a brief rundown of our of our fly program, if you will. Um, we actually have three rotations um, at the very beginning of our season, starting June 21st, going into July that is designated, um, we've designated spay only. Uh, most of those guys are primarily interested in in targeting catch and release kings on the spay rod. And so we're pretty stoked about that. Um, this in 24 will be the first season that we've had that designated for those guys. Uh, because there's been enough interest the past few years to to finally do that. Um, so for the guys that want to chase kings on a spay rod, I mean, we have, uh, I don't want to say sole access, but we are the only real players that are on the river um, on any sort of permanent basis. Um, and it's, you know, it's wide open. Uh, so that's cool to start the season. Um, from there on, we'll say, you know, mid-July on to the end of silver season, any given rotation is going to have a mixture of, of gear and fly anglers. Uh, uh, we cater to both. 
um, for sure. I think we're probably most well known um, for our silver fishery on fly rods. Um, we get into mid to late silver season. So we'll say, you know, late August through the first half of September, it's probably 60 to 75% um, fly anglers. Yeah. Or those with a preference to catch them on the fly rod. Yeah. And so we, we catered all those things. A lot of, a lot of the time with silvers, we're stripping, you know, big streamers or clousers subsurface, um, either heavily weighted flies or heavily weighted lines. We kind of leave that to the preference of the angler ponds each way for that. Uh, but we do a lot of, a lot of topwater stuff for the silvers as well. Um, your, your conventional, you know, pink polywog sort of setup that you'll see in a lot of the Bristol Bay drainages, but we, we've gotten pretty creative over the years and we've got some, I'll call them unique patterns. I don't even know what to call them. The silvers love the most unnatural, brightly colored yeah. fluorescent that you can come up with. And so it's pink, right? Pink is good. Yeah. Well, pink is always good. Yeah. Yeah. You're not matching any sort of hatch, but no. dude, it is crazy. Are you guys doing any of the top water stuff for the coho? Oh yeah. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And it's like anything, it's water dependent, you know, river level dependent. Some years we have, we get into the most epic top water fishing that you can possibly imagine. Other years when the water's a little bit lower, they're in some of the deeper runs um, and they're not as apt to the surface. So just water dependent. But if we get moderately high water at all, yeah, there is some exceptional top water silver action to be had. Sweet. And, and what about for rainbows? When would be a good time to hit those for on the fly? Yeah. Um, I would say, man, I don't know that there's ever really not a good, right. Job. Cause they're there, they're there all the time. It's kind of like they're there early. Are you guys doing the, the mousing? Is that a, an option out there? Yes, it is. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that I would say, if you want to get them on the mouse, um, the first half of our season, yeah, early. Uh, so let's say our, our, our June, July season, would be the best bet for that. They seem to be, they're the hungriest at that time because there's not a lot of spawning going on. Most of the smolts um, that they're chasing the downstream sockeye smolts have already exited the river at yeah. that point. Yeah, there's not Certainly a ton not of all, eggs, yeah. A lot of, and there's not a ton of eggs yet. And those fish are coming, I mean, they're, they're post-spawn, right? They're spawning in April and May, most of them, the first part of June even, and they are on the chow after. Yeah, we've, we've had some very, very good days on mouse pattern. That's great. So, so you could do a June like that time. You could hit maybe some Kings and the rainbow potentially. Oh, definitely. Yeah. You could have some really good rainbow fishing. You're not going to have the other bycatch, uh, with, uh, with Dolly Varden at that, at that point in the season, I, there will be some around the big push of the, the sea run dollies comes probably mid to late July, but yeah, late June, first part of July focus on Kings and rainbows. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. That's a cool quality fishery right there yeah. like it's you're not going to be you're not going to hook 100 fish a day but like the fish that you do get i mean they're going to be just rambunctious a trophy fish you know yeah. I, mean? I was just telling someone this earlier today like we kind of touched on this earlier like our our rainbow fishery is a super underdog like it's not known for catching 30 fish over 20 inches in a day but you're probably going to have like four to five opportunities and one might be an absolute tank oh, like right. yeah chances at a fish over 25 inches pretty decent oh even very pretty, good pretty we, we don't sure one thing that we've always been very cautious of with anything that we're offering is we don't want to oversell it. sure right? yeah i would rather i would rather tell you it's going to be mediocre and have you show yeah, up balance expectations right definitely and like i mentioned earlier we we haven't dug super deep into the rainbow fishery but what we have dug into I think it's there. Yeah, I, I think it could be really good. And I don't want to oversell it, but just, I mean, 
the limited number of trips that we've ran specifically for rainbows early season on mouse patterns, it has been quite good. It has been quite, quite good. So there's that. There's the first part of the season. As you get into, we'll say, mid-July or so, you, you've got spawning fish around. Certainly by late July, you've got the chums and the kings that are starting to spawn. Um, and really anywhere that you can find spawning fish, there are rainbows in behind them chowing on them. Yeah, and the, the thing with the rainbows, too, as you get later into July and August, if you're fishing beads, it, it can be really hard to weed out the dollies because the dollies are just ravenous oh, right. the beads. So like what I was doing during our break period, I was just fishing giant streamers and free drifting them, not stripping or anything, just letting them float. And that, that for the rainbow specifically, it was much easier to out the dollies and I, I mean i wasn't hooking a ton of fish i was probably getting three or four opportunities in a couple hours but they were really good fish too. yeah and, and as, I'm, as i'm sure you've seen dave like when fish are unpressured it, they are so forgiving right and i think we're just we're extraordinarily blessed to be surrounded by a bunch of fish that are largely unpressured and they they're hungry and they're aggressive and they bite things that you know in a lot of places they wouldn't even look twice at right it's forgiving you're, you're in a wild place that's not pressured a whole lot yeah. they're not seeing a lot of people so you can fish some big goofy looking kind of obnoxious present to weed out i don't want to call them the undesirables because those dollies are cool they are fantastic fish but if you want to go target rainbows you can you can do that by fishing something that's a little bit ridiculous and they're still all over it yeah and so that's you know, mid-season there's a there's a lot of a lot of egg pattern stuff going on a lot of streamer stuff going on as we get into late silver season assuming that we have low water it's it's really low water dependent if we can end silver season with low water on the drop I, our biggest rainbows of the year every year have come end of silver season so we're talking you know for us that looks like early to mid september we're gonna start running a little bit later in the year here in the years to come i know there's some operations uh, that will do fly-in trips to the togiak and they're running into the first part of october but if we can get that low water from September 1st on, giant rainbows. And a lot of times we're running into them throwing spinners or jigs or, or big silver flies, you know, and, and, their, and their incidental catch. That's one of the things moving forward that we really want to go and target, assuming that we have the water conditions because they're, they're hungry at that point. And for whatever reason, the big fish seem to be around lower in the river when we have low water like that. Yeah, that's right. So basically, you guys are the only lodge on the Togiak, but people are, are flying in, or people are getting in there. Is, is that the yeah. case? Because you're the only lodge that shows up on the map. Correct. Yeah, there there are three other um, lodge operations that will fly in their guests on a float plane um, on a daily basis, assuming that they have the weather to do so. And so <laughs> a lot of summers, they're there, you know, 40% of the time, and they'll show up at... Eh, 10, 1030, and they're off the water by two, if, if they can even get there. Um, we've, we like to say that we've had our pick of everything before they've got there. Just Right. Before. And at the end of the day, you could fish later and be there and fit when people are. Oh, yeah. Yep. yeah and and if, if there's inclement weather, it doesn't, I mean, as long as the client is willing to go out in it, we're there. Yeah. And here's the thing, like, here's how we differ from those fly out camps and the other lodges, like in, in June and July there, I should say late June and, and through mid July, they're focusing, the fly out camps are focusing their efforts on rivers where they can harvest Kings. That, that's where they're taking their guests for the most part. Uh, for us, all of our Kings are catch and release. 
and we so we have a, we don't have a focus as we come into July. We don't have a focus specifically on kings. Like we make it about all the species because they're plentiful. Like there's just there's so many different fish that you can go and catch and experience. Why focus so specifically on just one? Like you're in Alaska, you're in the remote most remote place you could be. Like get a little taste of all of it, you know. And so the difference between us is that those camps aren't over there until like the first part of August. Like they they might come in. They might come in and do some flossing trips for sockeye or something mm-hmm. in late July, early August. We have the river to ourselves. That whole first season. The whole first season, and it's awesome. Oh, wow. So nobody, so you're not seeing much in, in June, that early part of the season? No. Ju- June and July, there was nobody else there. No, it was us. Y- you know, you have some folks in town that might sure. show up and sport a little bit. But, yeah, the other camps are non-existent pretty much. And so that's like everyone gets super hyped about the silver season and, and silver trips. And don't get me wrong that is awesome it like that's some of the coolest stuff you'll ever see but in my opinion the real underdog here is mid to late july because the river the river is full with everything minus silvers and on the fly rod you don't know what you're going to catch especially when you're like targeting like the mouth of the geeshik or the mouth of the pongo you're at the like the, the mouth of the tribs right like everything stacks up there and you're catching chums and sockeye and kings and pinks it is like if you just want to catch fish on a fly rod, it is a target rich. It is awesome. It is my most favorite time out of the whole year to fish yeah. mid to late July. Yeah, I agree. Because you don't know what you're going to catch. It's it, and as you know, pinks are one. We were just up in uh, fishing for steelhead, and we were hooking pinks. And a couple of those pinks we got were like a serious tug. You know, it was like a steelhead. Are those fish pretty bright that you guys are getting in there? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. As we get into into late July, there are a ton of chrome bright fresh sockeye coming in most of the kings are going to be a little bit colored up by that time period we'll see fresh kings all the way into like the middle of august some years but not in large catchable numbers the the main the main push of chrome bright kings is going to be before like the 24th Um, and from the 24th of july through like the 5th of august it's just a gradual descent down to a trickle but, you know, let's say mid to end of July, can you go catch a couple chrome bright kings? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, what, the kings that you're going to run into a little higher up in the system at, at the mouth of those tributaries, um, I'll call them dusky. Like they're not ready to spawn yet, but they're not chrome bright. You'll have a mixture of chrome bright sockeye and then colored up sockeye. And you'll have a mixture of chrome bright chums and chums that have been in the system for a little while longer. Um, when our chums come in, a lot of times you cannot see the bars on them. They're so bright. But they're awesome. They're really, awesome really fantastic quality. fish. And then the pinks. Man, I've tried to figure out the, the the pink runs up there. Where we are in Washington, we have we have decent pink runs, and they're generally on odd numbered years. And on the even numbered years, you'll get a couple. You know, you have some stragglers that are not with the rest of them. In Alaska, the the large pushes of pinks are generally associated with the even numbered years, so the opposite of the lower forty eight. Um, and in the odd numbered years, you have eh, moderate numbers. The last few years on the Togiak, it's been hard to distinguish between the pink ears and the non-pink ears because they're so every year. Yeah, they're so um, And they start in late June. Yeah. And we have chrome bright fresh pinks coming in well into September. It's just, it's kind of the whole, the whole summer. And there's waves, you know, there's times where there's not many around and then all of a sudden there are literally millions. Uh, and so you take those guys into the mix with everything else, like, on a pink year, on an even-numbered year, first week of August probably is when the pinks are at peak numbers. Yeah. If a guy wanted to catch, I'm going to throw an outlandish number out there, but I mean it, 
if a guy wanted to land 200 pinks a day on a fly rod in the first week of August, he could do it if he wanted to work that hard. And I know, like, I know for the folks at home, they're like, nah, no way. Right. <laughs> Too much work. It's hard to wrap your brain around what that even looks like, like experientially, right? You know, well, you know, a hundred a day is so many an hour, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Until you get there and you see that potential, like there, there aren't words. That is cool. I feel like fly anglers and maybe just anglers in general love a little bit of pain. You know, that's why I like the Chinook or Steelhead is a good example, right? Like they're so hard to catch and that makes it almost more enjoyable in some weird way. I'm not in any way like making this, uh, hey, come up here so that you can land 200 a day. Like I, no, I would no. way prefer the guys came up, caught eight or 10 fish, got their butts handed to them and had a fantastic time. I'm just saying like that's the, that's the level of biomass that is swimming up that river yeah. at times. Yeah. Just just awesome. so kind of try and figure it. Yeah, that's it. Uh, so, so once you're out and you have a day on the water, so you said, what time are you typically getting back to, you know, and having dinner, getting all that stuff? What's that look like? Yeah. So, uh, boats take off in the morning and right at eight, we have two options for lunch. They can come back for a self-serve deal between 1130 and one o'clock, kind of eat at their leisure, uh, and then get back out on the river or they can take to go lunches out on the boat so that they don't have to come back more fishing time. Uh, and then, the boats roll back in right around 5, 5.30. Guides either clean fish or get the boats cleaned up for, for the evening. Guests come in, clean up, shower, whatever. And then we start apps. Uh, appetizers are at 6. Uh, salads are at 6.30. And then we serve our main course between 6.45 and 7. And then it's just like they can do whatever they would like to do after that. Just go hang out. A lot of people go out on the patio and hang out, visit with each other, smoke cigars. I mean, it's just... Yeah, it's 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 what they want to do with their time at that yeah. point. We, we, we've got a number of different options for folks. We do have a what we call a large patio deck out in the front yard. We're, we're built on, well, we're down in the tide flats, and it's all tundra, so it's pretty boggy. Like, you don't just go waltz across the grass unless it's been an exceptionally dry summer. Oh, right. Yeah, what is that? Describe the tundra to somebody. Like, what would happen if yeah, you walked across like, the tundra? It would be like walking on a six to eight inch thick sponge that looks dry, but you step on it and all the water comes out of it. That would be how I would you, explain it. If, if we have boardwalks everywhere mm -hmm. so that we don't get our feet wet. But if you, if you step off of the boardwalk and you don't have muck style boots on, your feet are going to get wet. Yeah. And so um, to make usable space in our front yard, which overlooks the river, it's right there. Uh, we have a very large patio deck. I, I don't know the dimensions off the top it's of my big. head. It was big enough where we, used, where we used to play basketball games on it. We had a basket back in the day. Um, but at any rate, we've got that set up as a kind of an outside lounge area. Um, we've got we've got uh, deck seating out there, and then we've got a fire pit area as well. So on the the nights where the weather or the bugs will allow, you know, we will we'll do fires and stuff outside and hang out outside. We've also got a large front porch on the main lodge. I'm trying to remember the dimensions of that. I want to say that thing is sixty by twenty, something like that. So there's there's outside hangout space there. Um, each guest cabin has a um, a porch on the front of it uh, for the same sort of thing. And then we've got a, a lounge hangout area in the main lodge. Um, we've got four couches in there. Yeah. Um, we've got uh, we've got books that people can read. We've got games that they can play. There's satellite TV if they want to watch it. We've got a sauna as um, well. We've got a sauna that people have access to as well. So there's stuff to keep people occupied in the evenings. Most of the time, though, they're pretty pooped and people are in bed pretty early, surprisingly. Yeah, uh, a lot of the feedback we get is like people just love how like remote and how quiet it is. And so they really enjoy just like going back to their rooms and just reading a book and just like enjoying the fact that they're in the middle of 
they're in the middle of nowhere, but they have hard walls around them and their own bathroom, and it's yeah. just it's cool. Well, and I, so I forgot probably the most important question that a lot of people are going to ask is, can we fish after dinner? And in a, in a guided capacity, generally the answer is no, um, unless for whatever reason they were delayed getting in or there's something else that arises that we you know handle on a case-by-case basis. But um, we have rods and everything rigged up, ready to go. People are more than welcome to fish off the dock or off the bank, um, either in front of the lodge or upstream of the lodge. And sometimes some of the best uh, rainbow and Dolly Varden fishing occurs right in front of the lodge. Oh, yeah. Um, also, some of the best king fishing, depending on the year, occurs right in front of the lodge it's a it is a tremendously good king staging zone and so a lot of evenings we'll have six or eight bank rods you know lined up plunking rods so to speak rod holders right off the edge of the bank and everybody's hanging out on the porch telling stories and oh there you go you know, talking about their days and the, and the bank rods are going off or during dinner you know everybody will be sitting there eating dinner and all of a sudden a bank rod goes off and the lodge empties and everybody runs out to you know see what's on the end of the line so yeah um, that's pretty cool there's a little, little bit of a little bit of everything for everybody, depending on what they want to do. Gotcha, gotcha. And is up there? Can you keep uh, species, certain species of salmon? Can you take home? You know, that's a pretty common thing in some areas, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, the the daily salmon on the Togiak um, is five salmon, um, com- any combination of species, uh, with the exception of kings. Kings are not open for retention if they are over twenty inches long. So the state of Alaska allows you to keep what they would define as a jack king salmon. I mean, that's any any king salmon that's under 20 inches. Uh, anything above that has to be let go. But for the sockeye or the chums or the pinks or the silvers, coho, if you want to call them that, um, you can keep five salmon per day. Yeah. So you go five salmon per day. So you could come back with a box of salmon if you want. And then what, you just ship them out on the, on the plane sort of thing? Yep, we've got uh, lodge-provided wax fish boxes that we're happy to package everything up in. Um, or if a, if a guest wants to bring a, a small cooler, um, a lot of times we'll recommend that if they're, you know, flying to anywhere farther away than the than the west coast of the lower 48. We'll package them up in whatever container they want them packaged in. Um, our our lodge limit that we impose is is uh, 50 pounds of flays per person. Um, and there's a couple reasons for that. Most importantly, what we don't want um, our lodge operation to be is... Uh, you know, it's a good old boys club where you just come and load up with right. as much fish as you possibly can. We we are not anti-harvest at all. We are very much pro-responsible harvest. Jordan and I both, um, we, we love to harvest fish and game um, for, for food, right? Yeah. Not because it makes, it makes sense cost-effective-wise, but because that's something that we enjoy doing. And uh, so we want our guests to do that, but we want them to to know and appreciate that they're in a special place that is wild and it's pristine and it it hasn't experienced the decrease in run sizes that we've seen in other places where quite frankly, we've over harvest, whether that's on the sport fishing side or the commercial fishing side. And so what is, what is 50 pounds of flays equate to really that turns into probably three, maybe four days of daily limits um, on average middle of the road size, let's say silvers. Right. Uh, per- so Sockeye, I mean, sockeye are going to be similar in size to silvers on the Togiak. We have large sockeye compared to other places. If you keep three days limits, you're probably going to be real close to that 50 pounds per person. And if you're there on a five-day trip, we just tell people, don't you know, don't feel this pressure to go get your harvest out of the way. If you catch a nice fish or you catch a couple, you're like, you know what? Those would be great eating fish. Go ahead and kill them and, and move on. And by the end of your five days, you're going to have a decent pile of fish. Maybe it's 43 pounds. Maybe it's 47 pounds. 
don't focus so much on the harvest, harvest, harvest. Enjoy the harvest. You're going to eat some fish while you're there if you want to. Enjoy the experience and just take all of it in. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. And that's that's kind of what's cool about the king season you guys have set up is that, you know, for me, that's definitely one species I would love to, uh, you know, go for on the fly and then get some rainbows along the way. Right? I'm, I'm assuming people aren't killing rainbows. That's not one of the species that's included. No, no. It, per Alaska regulations, you're allowed to keep two a day. Our lodge policy is that it's catch and release. Yeah, yeah. So so I can see that July 8th. And what was that period again? The kind of the last end of June into early July is kind of that Chinook uh, fly season. It is. Yeah. So that will start this year on June 21st. Um, so the 21st through the 26th, the 26th through the 1st, and the, then the 1st of July through the 6th, those will be designated um, spay uh, king salmon trips. And then if, you know, all guys are there, if they want to go chase rainbows as well, we're certainly happy to do that. Um, I would say um, really good king fishing, uh, king and rainbow fishing, probably through just based on peak numbers through the 15th of July, like you're still in the swing of it for the combination of gear and fly guys that will come after the spay rotations. I would say that there are good catchable numbers of Kings, like consistently you can rely on it through July 24th, certainly not in the numbers that you experienced, you know, 10 days prior. Um, and then from, you know, July 24th through, through the end of July there, the Kings are slowing down to a trickle at that point. Yep. Awesome. Awesome. This is cool. So, so well, anything else you guys want to shed light on? I know we haven't covered it all today. We've kind of hit the surface, but as far as the experience, what can, you know, people can expect before checking in with you? Yeah, absolutely. So what I'd like to say is, you know, when Zach and I started working in Togiak and this isn't a slight or, or meant to be disrespectful to the previous management, but it was definitely a good old boys club. It was like, can I take three boxes of fish home? Absolutely. And again, like that's, we don't want it to be about that. It's, it's way more. It should that. be way, way, way more than that. You shouldn't be booking a trip to Alaska exclusively, especially to a place like this exclusively for harvest. Uh, and at that, when we started, um, you know, you could retain a uh, Kings over 20 inches and now it's all catch and release. And we love that. Like we want to protect them, want to enjoy them. We want to get good photos with them. Like they're awesome. And the other part of that too is sockeyes keep way better, man. If you're going to take fish home, take home sockeye over. Like you can open a package of sockeye, you know, nine months after it's been processed and it's still amazing. If, if we could retain King still, King is not that way. It, you got like, you got like three months and then it gets pretty mushy. At so the most. At, at the most. Oh, right, right, right. And, and this is the famous Bristol Bay sockeye, right? I mean, all these, a lot of these, you hear about, it, you get the whole, the, the issue going with the the, um, the the mines up above, right, and stuff like that. But this is a famous sockeye area. Yeah, yeah. For those who have gone to Costco and bought sockeye, there's a good chance they've had sockeye out of Togiak Bay. Absolutely. Um, but it's just like we, we've definitely tried really hard to change the culture since we have taken over ownership. I mean, obviously, Zach and I are both uh, fly anglers. Uh, we don't have a preference one in, in one way, but we like to enjoy all of it. And you know, a lot of people will, will write in and ask, oh, are you gear specific? Are you fly specific? Because there are a lot of places that run one or the other. And we're like, hey, it, it's your trip. Like, we will make it the best wilderness experience that we can based off of what you want to experience. We have no biases. We have no preferences. Like, we are here to just give, like, the best experience possible based off of what you want to do. And if that means that you have a fly rod in your hand, super. And if not, 
that's fine too. And if you want to learn while you're there, even better. Like we will take the time. We'll put you with a guide who wants to teach you. Uh, everybody's got to start somewhere. And that's where I started. That's it. That's it. This is really cool. No, I love where you guys are going with this. And so, so now it's kind of November. I mean, what for you guys, what, what's the next now until the season kicks off, what, what, what are you going to be doing here the next five, six months? Yeah. So really this job never stops for us. I think we like to tell ourselves and we definitely like to tell our wives that if we work really, really hard through the operating season, <laughs> yeah, take time off. It makes it less busy in the off season. And, and really that is true, but there's so much going on a year round basis. So we get home, you know, mid to late September, we take a couple weeks to just decompress. And then it is immediately back into um, booking and scheduling and invoicing for the upcoming season. Uh, that, that's all got to be really all those ducks have to be in a row before January one. Um, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of busy work there. Um, any bookkeeping that we haven't caught up on, you know, over the, the course of the operating season, we jump into that, make sure everything's right, get all of our tax stuff prepared. And then immediately into, you know, for me personally, I do a lot more of the hands-on stuff. I'm into tackle and gear prep for the next year. And a lot of people kind of look at me funny when I say that, but there is so much work there that you don't realize we run at our busiest, we'll run 10 guides and we run a 75 ish day season. It's 750 guide days on the water that we have to prepare for, be ready for before we ever start, you know, so that's rods, reels, line, you know, old line off reels, fixing reels that are broken, doing all of our tackle preps. So any spinner jigs flies, all of that, we do as much as we can ourselves because, um, you know, a lot of the commercially available stuff is expensive, even on lodge programs. And so there's, you know, for me, I think I did the math. It was like theoretically 13, 40 hour work weeks just in tackle and gear and guide and boat prep. That's a few months right there. Do you guys, does the lodge stay locked in? Is it kind of like during the winter? Does it just, is there people there? Or is it just locked down? Yeah. So, um, currently we, uh, we winterize and board the place up and lock it up super tight. Um, in years past, we've actually had a, a caretaker who um, has lived there the other you know, nine-ish months out of the year. I'm not sure what we're going to do moving forward. This will be the second year that we've uh, essentially winterized the place. And there's there's pros and cons to each side. You know, when there's a caretaker there, we'll get home. We're like, shoot, we forgot to count this, that, or the other thing. Okay, call up so-and-so. Let's, let's have him check it out. Well, when there's no caretaker there, you can't do that. So your, your preparation becomes very important. And there were a few things when we got up there last, last spring, uh, we got up there and went, shoot, man, we completely forgot about this or that or the other thing. Yeah. So, so now it's been, so you guys get up there. When, when do you guys get up there? Um, usually mid to late May. Yeah. Like between May 15th yeah. and May 20th has just cause we got, we have so many maintenance projects that we've been trying to get caught up on. It's, we got to get there early to get ahead of prep and all that stuff. And then our containers typically show up by June 5th ish usually. So we send up two 20 foot containers stuffed full of all sorts of stuff every year. And so life revolves around the barge up there. Like that's how you get all of your heavy stuff in. So it's very difficult to plan for projects and when stuff is actually going to come in because <laughs> everything is just on such a flexible fluid schedule up there, you know? Wow. Wow. This is, this is cool. This is the Alaska experience to get a little inside view of you guys. Well, like I said, we, we didn't hit on everything today. I think we'll have to get you guys back on to talk more about this as we go, but um, we will uh, send everybody out. Like we said at the start, uh, 
I guess where are the best place? You guys just say it yourself. Togiak, right? The TogiakLodge.com? Yes, TogiakLodge.com. All right, guys. Well, uh, this has been awesome. I appreciate all the insight here. I'm excited if I'm able to get up there. And I think everybody listening now, um, it sounds like you got everything going good. So uh, thanks for your time today. And we'll look forward to staying in touch with you. Awesome, Dave. We really appreciate it. Yeah, look forward to having you up there. That is a wrap. You can grab all of the show notes at wetflyswing.com. And please follow us on Instagram and share this episode out with someone you love. Please send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com, if you have any feedback or want us to put together an episode on this podcast for you. Check in anytime. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and would love to meet up with you on the water. We have new fly fishing schools going all year long and all around the country. So if you want to connect, let's do it right now. All right, time to get out of here. I hope you have a great evening. I hope you have a great morning or great afternoon wherever in the world you are. And I appreciate you for stopping by and checking out the show today. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.